This is Pursuing Justice, and I'm Harriet Handel. Our theme for the next few podcasts is homelessness and its impact on children. Today, we have Andrea Elliott with us again. She is the author of Invisible Child, which we began discussing last week. We also have Josh Goldfein, who is a senior staff attorney with Legal Aid in New York City. Josh has been working in this capacity since 1993, which means he has worked with five mayors. It's good to have you with us today, Josh. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's clear to me that you are passionate about the issue of homelessness. I read an op-ed you wrote for the Daily News back in 2020 about safe shelters for the homeless during the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, it stated that the death rate in shelters due to COVID was 79% higher than New York City as a whole. What has been your approach to homelessness over all the years? The um, response that I almost always give to that question is that homelessness is actually a very simple problem. It has a very simple solution, and that's housing. And um, in, in all the ways that we look at the programs that exist, the programs that should exist, the problems that we're facing, the answer is pretty much always provide people with safe, affordable housing, and that will solve the problem. And we as a society um, spend a lot of time trying more complicated, less effective other solutions, maybe because they're seen as being cheaper, um, but uh, in the end, when you have somebody who doesn't have a place to live, they need a place to live, you give them a place to live, the problem is solved. <laughs> Sounds very easy. How did you get involved with the Coates family in Andrea's book? Uh, we, at the time, um, were class counsel in a number of cases that covered the shelter system, people's rights in the shelter system. Um, the, these cases established the right to shelter in New York City. And um, at the time uh, that I guess I first heard from Andrea, she had a family who was, um, she was working with who had some issues um, in dealing with the shelter system. She wanted to tell their story. She had questions about their rights and the history of the shelter system and how it was supposed to work, but also she was talking to a family who had real problems and they needed to be solved. And um, as uh, um, she couldn't just stand there and, and um, not tell them how they could get help. So she asked if she could refer them to us uh, for assistance with the, the problems that they had. And if you would tell me how, how um, did you work did or should I say, did you work together as a team or did you more work separately? Um, I think there were uh, maybe two things going on. Um, you know, we're a law firm, we have clients, we have obligations to our clients, and that's our primary focus. So when um, Andrea identified some issues, um, some of which we knew about and were already looking into, and some of which she brought to our attention. Um, you know, those became um, legal problems for uh, the class of homeless 
families with children in New York City who we represented in a lawsuit. Um, in addition, she had uh, an individual family who became our clients on their own, and they had specific issues that were relevant to their case that they needed us to help them with. And so we took that on as well. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, we have a very broad approach to litigation and, and, and the tools that we can use to advance the interests of our clients. And we saw that um, the project that she was involved in, uh, if it was successful, could focus public attention in a way that could bring about real change for our clients uh, very effectively and maybe uh, faster even than um, we could get through filing a lawsuit. So, uh, you know, specifically I'm talking about the conditions at the Auburn shelter, which is the facility where this family was residing. And there were a couple other shelters that were just like large old New York City run buildings that um, were sheltering families with children in terrible conditions. And um, this had, had been a very stubborn problem for us for years, but recognizing that, you know, if we could get the New York Times to focus people's attention on this problem, um, that's the kind of thing that, you know, gets a, a, a quick response from, from elected officials in a way that us filing a lawsuit, you know, might, um, might take a lot longer. I want and, to just jump in for a yeah, second. Yeah, and I was going to ask you a question about the shelter itself, uh, which we really didn't describe. So maybe answer, say what you were going to say, and then I'd like you to maybe tell us specifically what you saw at the Auburn shelter. Sure. The thing I want to share is that in the very beginning, Josh on the phone was very skeptical. This is, was mm -hmm. my my first impression of him was, oh yeah, another reporter who says that she's interested in homelessness. I've been at this for years. What's really going to change here? You know, he was skeptical, understandably. And and my job isn't to um, take a side or to affect change. I, of course, one wants as a journalist to have an impact. Um, but really, I just wanted to get inside this shelter. And I had found this family and I didn't know where this project was taking me either. And what was so interesting was that I think what actually, when I, when I think back on those first few conversations, he was very kind to spend as much time as he did on the phone with me, given he's a very busy person and he had a healthy dose of skepticism about where this was going. But uh, the more he heard me describe their lives, the, the, at some point I remember Josh, you saying something like, you know, I can't hear this and not do anything. Like I need to step in. So I'm going to talk to them. <laughs> but also back at the times we were having meetings because I couldn't get into the shelter. It was closed to the public. Uh, I'll tell you about the conditions. The photographer and I wanted to get in. And so we decided that the only way not to blow our cover and to really show what was happening was to sneak in. But we also mm -hmm. understood that that would potentially put the family at risk. And that is the point at which I think my role and Josh's role kind of became more clearly defined because he said, look, if, if something happens and they are punished for this in any way, we're going to represent them. So that I could tell my bosses that at the time that, you know, we'd, you know, we have some kind of um, uh, protection in place for the family we, because we didn't want to put them in a position of being homeless or being kicked out of the shelter for cooperating. So that that's a little bit the backstory. And then we did sneak 
through a back door, which set off the fire. It was the fire escape, hmm. the alarm. And we ran past uh, four sets of security guards and got up into this room. And it was shocking. There uh, were mattresses um, that formed a kind of um, labyrinth of pathways and piles of clothes. Hmm. And just imagine trying to live with nine other people in one room with one rotting sink and mice and vermin. Uh, it was just shocking. Yeah. yeah. Um, Josh, you, you mentioned that the solution is relatively simple. Um, I wanted to run something by you. Several years ago, I saw a program, I believe it was 60 Minutes, and the program was about uh, an organization called Housing First. Can you, do you, are you familiar with that at all? Yeah. I mean, I think um, Housing okay. First more broadly is a, um, an approach. It's a, a practice. Um, uh, I'm sure there are um, organizations around the country that have taken that on as their name and their community. Mm -hmm. um, but really what Housing First means um, is that uh, there was a, there was a New Yorker piece by Malcolm Gladwell about uh, a guy called Million Dollar Murray. Um who um, was not in New York, but he was a, a homeless person um, uh, who lived on the street um, primarily. Um, and when he needed medical care, he would go to the emergency room and he would always be at that point in, in pretty bad shape because he wasn't, he didn't want to go to the hospital. Um, so he only went when he really had to. And by the time he got there, he, he required a significant level of care. And uh, they called him Million Dollar Murray because the hospital, he didn't have any health insurance and the hospital was having to absorb the costs of his care. And they determined that he was costing them a million dollars a year in health care. Um, but um, the, uh, the, the town, had, I think it was Salt Lake City actually, had adopted a housing first practice. And so um, they rented an apartment and they put him in it and um, as the first level of intervention. And as a result, his health stabilized. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't have to go to the hospital nearly as frequently. So um, when I referred earlier to, you know, people say that the costs um, of such a program seem like they're too high. And that's why we haven't just solved the problem by giving people housing that they can afford and that's safe and stable for them. Um, in, in Murray's case, you know, it was actually cheaper to rent him this apartment than to have him continually um, need uh, an acute level of care and to get it out of the emergency room in a public hospital. Um, and so the, the obvious solution to his problem was he needed a place to live. He was provided with the place to live. And then that solved many other problems for him, including his health care. And on, on the whole, that proved to be cheaper for the uh, governmental entities that were responsible for his care. Uh, providing him with that apartment. So housing first refers to the idea that you start off um, by housing people and then all the other right. issues in their lives that are preventing them from, um, you know, having a stable um, existence um, will be much easier to solve. If, you know, you, you, we also, we talk about sort of the, the pyramid of, of people's needs. You know, you have to deal with the most urgent needs in your life first. And clearly shelter is among shelter. them. If you're, if you're out on the street, you can't solve any other problem 
in your life. Right. If you have a place to live, then you can, you know, work your way down the list and and start to address the, the other needs that you have. So so in terms of that concept, has that been tried in New York City? And I also wanted to mention a, an amazing article, the timing of which was terrific in last Sunday's New York Times magazine about Stephen Banks and the whole issue of homelessness. And I figured you probably read it. So uh, I powered my way through it. So let I wanted to know, has that idea of finding a home for people um, been tried by New York City? And you know, if not, why not? Yeah, in, in New York City, there are there's uh, been a couple of uh, uh, different programs that follow a housing first model to, to one degree or another. Um, and these the idea here is that um, many of the people who are on the streets of New York City, if you ask them, you know, why are you here? You know, there's a shelter system that is available to you. Would you like to go there? Many people will say to you, no, I, I, I don't feel safe there. Um, I don't feel welcomed there. I feel like I'm better off on the street than going into one of those shelters. So the idea was to create a model that would be more accessible to those folks, that would be a place that they would not resist going to, that if you said to them, you know, you could go here tonight and you would have a place to sleep and it would not be like that shelter that you remember, it would be a different kind of environment. Um, that's, you know, following, the, I'd say, the principles of the Housing First model. It's mm -hmm. not exactly um, what's been tried in other places, but that's New York's answer to it. Um, we have a couple of different kinds of shelter models that work that way. They've proven very successful. They were expanded dur during the pandemic, um, and uh, they, um, the city has said that they would like to continue um, to use those beds uh, going forward. Uh, not just on an emergency basis. Um, we believe that the system should be expanded to include far more of those easily accessible kinds of beds and that they um, should really just convert the entire single adult shelter system to that model, um, which um, is again designed to be um, more accessible to people who, have, would, would, who would say to you, I don't like what I've seen of the shelter system. Now, in, in the article that I just referenced, I learned something I did not know. And the idea that um, the only city in the United States, New York City, has this right to shelter. Um, I, I wonder if you would talk about that. The right to shelter comes in New York City comes from uh, a court case um, in which we are counsel. Um, it, it, the first case uh, that was filed uh, was filed on behalf of single adult men in 1979. It was filed by a lawyer named Bob Hayes, who was working at a at a major New York law firm, but took on as a pro bono client a man named Robert Callahan, who was sleeping on the streets um, in New York City, uh, very close to where Hayes lived. And so Hayes um, met Mr. Callahan and talked to him and said, you know, I'm a lawyer, I could do something about this. Um, working with legal aid, he and his firm filed a case called Callahan versus Carey. Hugh Carey was the governor of New York at the time. And, and that case was brought on behalf of Robert Callahan and other 
homeless single adult men who were living on the streets. Now, this was 1979. We wouldn't file a case that way today, um, but that's that that was the, the case that they brought. And um, the case was settled. The, the state got out of the case, but New York City was also a defendant. And Ed Koch, who was the mayor at the time, settled the case and agreed that there was a right to shelter for single adult men. And what that meant was that uh, that they, if you are homeless, then the city has to give you a bed. And in every other community where there's something like a right to shelter, um, there are limits on how many beds there are or time limits, or um, uh, it is possible for people to come in and, and need a bed. And, and the, the, the city, the municipality will say, I'm sorry, we don't have any beds tonight. We'll put you on the wait list. That can't happen in New York City. We have to have a bed for everybody. So because there was a right to shelter as acknowledged by the city for single adult men, um, very quickly, uh, a case was brought for single adult women under equal protection theory. Of course, the city sure. had to acknowledge that there was a right to shelter for single adult women. And a few years later, uh, Steve Banks, um, who was then a staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society, which um, brought a case for families with children. Um, because uh, there was no court order that applied to children. And for various reasons, that case dragged on for, for decades, but we oh. eventually settled it in 2008. Um, and now there's, you know, there is a court order that says there is a right to shelter for families as well. So does that mean that there will never be a family, especially uh, the family in uh, Invisible Child that's so big that would ever um, have to sleep on the streets or have nowhere to go? So if the family is homeless, they get a shelter placement. Um, okay. We, in New York, there is an eligibility process um, that screens families with children. And they, they don't apply this process to single adults, but for families uh, uh, with children and also what they call adult families, which are families with no minor children, um, they do a screening process where they assess whether they think you have another place that you could stay. Oh. And at the end of that process, they may, they may decide you're not actually homeless. And so therefore we don't have to serve you. Uh, so you have a family come in and they say, we're homeless. We don't have a place to go. And the city says, well, we, we looked at all the places that you stayed in the last two years. And we found that, you know, 18 months ago, you stayed with a friend for a couple of weeks um, and we think you could go back there. Now, we have been, there've been some changes made to that process during the pandemic and um, the city has recently announced some significant changes. So we hope that that process will be improved from the kinds of mistakes that it has been, that it has made in the past. Um, but at the end of the day, there will still be this eligibility assessment of families, which um, in practice is, is a, very wasteful, burdensome uh, use of public resources. You know, if somebody's coming to the to the shelter system, um, as we've discussed, it doesn't have the greatest reputation in New York City. Um, it's extremely unlikely that somebody is going to come and present themselves and their children and say, "I need help." Who has someplace else to go? Yeah. Um, so it it seems like um, it's kind of like looking for voter fraud. You know, there's a mm -hmm. there's a whole staff of people who are paid to weed out the people who aren't really homeless. But in fact, you know, everybody who's coming in has a need for some kind of housing stability uh, and they wouldn't be there if they didn't have a real need. So right. 
um, we think that this process is uh, wasteful and harmful to families. They have made some improvements in it. So hopefully going forward, um, we'll have a better system, but really the way to solve it is to just treat everybody the way the single adults are treated, which is somebody comes in, you figure out what they need, you give it to them, you help them get back on their feet and send them on their way. And then, um, you know, they can, they can get on with their lives, which, which reduces costs to the city. Sure. Um, uh, Andrea, I was going to ask you, how many different places did Dasani and her family stay over the course of the time you knew them? I have various timelines um, for her mother, for her grandmother, and then when she was little. By the time Dasani, let's just focus on her, Mm -hmm. went away to boarding school uh, at the age of 13, she had lived in eight different shelters. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, I mean, what- How hard is that, right? It's very, very hard. And and just to build a little bit on what Josh was just saying about this eligibility process, it's experienced at the ground, you know, in in the life of someone like Dasani and her parents as just a an unnecessary tool of deterrence and punishment. It's not nobody really takes it on good faith. Of course, they're going to find. Although plenty of people do get rejected, that they are found ineligible. And Josh, you probably have better statistics on this. But that's not necessarily because they aren't eligible. It's just because the investigators came up with enough of, um, uh, you know, a counter argument. I remember, Josh, you telling me about a case that you had heard about a legal aid that involved an investigator looking at sleeping arrangements and deciding that the bathtub could be used. (laughs) A bathtub. Why not? You could sleep in your mother's bathtub. Um, So I think it is experienced as just, you you know, you get punished for this crime. The crime is is called being poor. And it's... um, it, it's a, when we, we go back to the question of costs and what's costly and what isn't, I think preventive measures are less popular and they are costly. And you can say this about various systems of government. So preventing uh, children from being removed from their parents, um, preventing a person from having uh, his or her or their mental health spiral down by virtue of keeping them in a shelter is more costly um, is very costly, but we never really talk about the the unknown costs, which is exactly the million dollar uh, story that Josh was just telling. So once you 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 weigh those two things, it's it's very very striking when it comes to an adult like that who's had all these health problems. It's I think even more jarring when you think about a kid like Dasani, because the cost to our future workforce, the cost to a full, you know, lifetime potentially of, you know, things like incarceration, teenage pregnancy, dropping out of high school, being unable to participate in the labor market, um, problems, uh, health problems, things like diabetes, you know, that are related to not just diet, but also um, this sort of toxic stress that comes with um, problems that are compounded around poverty those costs are enormous. And we know that when a child experiences a a bout of homelessness, the longer the bout, the more likely that child is to, uh, to, to get uh, into a place of costly problems, much Mm -hmm. costlier problems. Yeah. So I think that that is what is so striking about Dasani's story and about other homeless kids in, in the city, tens of thousands of homeless kids 
there are one in 10 home, either they're called students in temporary housing, but they could be homeless, they could be couch surfing, one in 10 in the school system, over 100,000 a year. All right. Well, we are out of just about out of time. And um, I wanted to ask you if you could give us a very, very quick update on the family, Andrea. Would you do that? The family is partly reunited after a long battle in family court um, following a case that accused the parents of neglecting their children by not providing adequate housing was the, the, the major focus in the beginning of that case. So four of the family members are back together, Dasani, her sister, uh, one of her sisters, one of her brothers and her mother. They're living in um, a rental now with Section 8 voucher, mm-hmm. which right. is a major uh, life-changing force in the lives of the under 3% of Americans who actually benefit from that program um, and public housing. So it's it's astonishing to me that's, that we don't have greater supports in place on the federal level for families like this. But her family is stable in terms of housing and designing herself is, I think, on an upswing. She would say that she's on an upswing in the sense that she graduated from high school. She's in college. She wants to be a realtor. This is the mm-hmm. latest. I heard this last week. Um, I mean, I love it because, you know, her experience of being homeless and living in all these decrepit places. And now she's fascinated by the idea of selling property of, and as she put it to me, I love seeing a home empty and then watching it fill. Mm, That's nice. Well, I thank you both for giving us your time today, along with your wisdom and compassion. Next time, we will meet a young woman whose independent spirit, her thirst for learning and resilience reminds me a great deal of Dasani. Her name is Robin Ledbetter. She will tell her story of growing up in prison from 14 to nearly 40. She has become my daughter over the last 13 years. Please join me on Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. This is Harriet Handel. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.